Good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, Chapel talk, that's a misnomer, right? We don't get to talk at all. You just get to listen, which is why this is not my favorite task. Standing and delivering from, from a platform is not my strength. I would much rather that we be in the classroom together where we can talk. So thanks to those of you who have been praying for me, I have coveted those prayers. Here goes. And now that I have your attention, let's talk. The only other time I've given a chapel talk, I spoke about rock and roll. This time I get the topic of sex. What's next? Drugs? (laughs) Sex, drugs, and rock and roll? What is it, the long hair? (laughs) Well, I hate to disappoint you, but I have zero experience and expertise from which to speak about drugs. So that's just not going to happen. But rock and roll worked well for me. By the way, if you want to listen to that talk, it's still accessible via the college archives. Most important, you'll get to hear some great sound bites from Guns N' Roses, Heart, Boston Rush, and others. Tune in and turn it up. It's worth a listen. And now, I hate to even further disappoint, but essentially all of the rest of this talk is not going to be about sex. Sexuality is not going to be about is, is essentially the rest of this talk is going to be about sex, sexuality, and gender at work, not sex sex, at least not in a fun way. But very briefly on the topic of sex. Sex is awesome. God created and designed it for our joy, but only in the context of a covenantal heterosexual marriage relationship. I know it's not that simple, but at the same time, it is that simple especially for us as God's people. Both special revelation and general revelation reveal that truth to us and also to the world if the world would listen. In terms of scripture, just read Song of Songs for all kinds of specific evidence of this simple truth. That said, I'm going to leave deeper exploration of sex sex to some of my other colleagues that are better equipped than I am to have that conversation with you. I know that some of them are already doing so, Dr. Eames and others. Thank God. Sex at work is not awesome. As awesome as sex is, sex and work simply don't mix in almost any circumstance. At a minimum, sex in the workplace creates ethical dilemmas, which is why many contemporary employer organizations have policies and behavioral codes of conduct that prohibit romantic sexual relationships among their employees, most squarely ones that involve bosses and subordinates, but not only those regardless of whether those relationships are consensual or not. So my advice for those of you that are single and available someday when you're in the workplace is to be very wary of pursuing romantic relationships with colleagues, regardless of whether the person of your affection is a peer, a boss, or a subordinate. In my opinion, you're just asking for trouble, or at least increasing the likelihood of trouble surfacing for you and your employer organization. In fact, Sex at work is so not awesome that oftentimes sex at work is illegal. This is a biggie. All I have to say is hashtag me too. So, hashtag listen up. God has graciously created protections for all of us given the reality that we live and work and have our being in an already redeemed but not yet fully consummated workplace. 
Case in point is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, a federal agency with the central mandate of fostering and enforcing an equitable workplace characterized by emotional and physical safety. The EEOC oversees the enforcement of several federal laws that collectively say to us, hey, play nice in the sandbox together or else. Relative to sex at work, it does this in two specific ways. First, the EEOC tells us, and this is hopefully obvious, that we can't say to a colleague, hey, if you go out with me, I'll give you a promotion, wink, wink. This is called quid pro quo, or this for that, sexual harassment, and it's illegal. Duh. Second, the EOC tells us that we can't say to a colleague, hey, you look really great in that shirt. Have you been working out? Or touch their arm and say, wow, I can feel how toned you are in your arms. That's hot. At least not repetitively. <laughs> this is called hostile work environment sexual harassment, and it's also illegal. Maybe not so duh in this case, but equally egregious in the eyes of the law and also in the eyes of our God, which makes such good sense. Through the EEOC, our God is celebrating and protecting sex sex by keeping it out of the workplace. What a gracious creator God. Because of the EEOC, we can more optimally do good work. It frees us up, as Daft Punk says, work it harder, make it better, do it faster, makes us stronger. That's a great tune, by the way. It's essentially a techno-funk celebration of work. Give it a listen. The EEOC is truly part of God's good creation, in several ways, actually. More on that in just a bit. Sexes are awesome, too. Our God created and sustains the universe and the earth we inhabit, and yet God created us as the only part of creation that uniquely reflects the divine image. God made us to be godlike. All of us. God created humankind godlike. In the image of God, humankind was created. Male and female, they were created. All men and women are amazingly special and unique as the only part of creation that bears God, God's image. Both sexes equally awesome and are both designed to be mysteriously complementary to one another, and together the sexes image the whole of God as creator. Without one sex or the other, we have an incomplete image of God. I would humbly posit that God's word tells us these truths. I know that we can get sidetracked here by conversations cre of creation order, that is, Adam being created before Eve, or even conversations that Eve was created from a part of, it, of Adam, you know, the whole rib thing. But I humbly suggest that we need to step back and look afresh at the word and maybe even engage with different interpretations and translations of all of this. One that I recently read and find personally intriguing and compelling makes the case that the original Hebrew language in the relevant passages of Genesis 1 and 2 strongly convey that both sexes are truly and equally imbued with the same image-bearing essence, but in complementary ways. And that the rib account actually underscores this truth. That same commentary also challenges the normative helpmate interpretation that both explicitly and implicitly infers hierarchy and differential value. An interpretation that many of us have been taught and instead posits a closer reading in the original language 
leading to a subtly but profoundly different interpretation. And that interpretation is this. Men and women complete each other and help each other equally. And together complete the image of God. I propose that this egalitarian view of man and woman is not only scriptural, but critical to a healthy workplace and world. Here at the college, I so admire how our leadership is leading us in this vein, pushing our community toward fully embracing sex-based egalitarianism in leadership roles, all the way to the level of our board of trustees. All I can say is, please continue to lead, lean into this as you lead us. I, for one, have got your back. And by the way, the law has your back too. I believe that our God feels so strongly about intentional and God-designed sex-based egalitarianism that again we can return to the work of the EEOC and view that work as a key source of God's common grace for the world and for the workplace. So again, listen up. It is illegal with very few exceptions where sex can be established as a bona fide occupational qualification for a particular job, and those are incredibly rare. It is illegal for employers to inequitably hire, train, promote, pay, and when necessary, fire men vis-a-vis -vis women, or vice versa. Through the work of the EEOC, our God is saying to us, compete nice in the sandbox, and don't throw sand in one another's eyes. Play fair. In short, according to the law, the workplace must be a place marked by both egalitarianism and meritocracy. And by the way, the EEOC and the courts, and ultimately our God, can hold employer organizations accountable for illegal sex-based discrimination and related outcomes regardless of the intentionality. Sounds a bit scary, right? It should. In a nutshell, if Acme Corporation intentionally only hires men for management-level jobs, they are, somewhat obviously, intentionally marginalizing women in an illegal manner. This is called disparate treatment, and it's illegal. But even if Acme Corporation has seemingly, seemingly equitable hiring processes in place designed to treat both male and female applicants for management-level jobs in the same manner, and because of unconscious bias, the company ends up hiring significantly more men than women for those jobs, the company can still be found liable for the differential hiring rates. This is called disparate impact, and it's also illegal. This is part of the reason I'm such a fan of well-designed affirmative action plans. Such plans help employer organizations to look themselves in the mirror and ask tough questions regarding their view of male and female image bearers, and then take action to affirm both. To not only right wrongs, but to celebrate rightness and righteousness in the workplace. In fact, collectively the EEOC and, the, and Affirmative Action protect and celebrate all image bearers on the basis of multiple classifications. Sex, for sure, as we've been discussing, but also race, age, religion, and ethnic origin, among others. It is illegal to marginalize sexes and races and ex ethnic origins and age in the workplace. And in my mind and heart, the parts of Genesis 1 and 2 that we discussed earlier teach an egalitarian view of all classifications of image bearers, not just on the basis of sex. I'm with our brother MLK on this, 
And I'm paraphrasing and expanding a bit here, but I hope in an honoring way. I have a dream that we will one day live in a nation where all image bearers are judged at work not by the color of their skin or their sex or their age or their ethnic origin, but by the content of their character and the exercise of their giftedness and talents. Indeed, we have come a long way as a nation on this front, but we still have a long way to go. For example, April 2nd, 2019, Equal Pay Day. This is the day in the new year that women will need to work until in order to earn as much as men did in the current year. Translation, women must put in 25% more hours to earn the same as men for comparable work in comparable jobs. And more broadly and somewhat anecdotally and closer to home, I suggest a walking tour around the offices of Chattanooga-based companies. I do this quite a bit in the course of my management consultancy activities. And if you do take that walk, you'll see what I see. Many employer organizations badly in need of greater diversity among their leadership and management ranks. Not just in terms of sex, but also in terms of race. I am thankful that an increasing number of those companies are taking the first step, which is simply acknowledging the problem. Several of my client organizations are among them, including, in a somewhat unique way, the college. I had the privilege of facilitating the strategic planning process for the college, and rest assured, rest assured that our leaders have unabashedly declared diversifying the leadership ranks of the college, again, all the way up to the top, all the way to the level of the Board of Trustees, to be a major strategic priority. How admirable that is. In my opinion, what a God-honoring priority. Once again, I say to our leaders, thank you. I'm big time cheering you on. Now to the topic of gender, which has to be in the mix. Jay Green asked me to discuss sexuality, sex, and gender in the workplace, so thanks a lot, Jay. But I'm going to largely kick this can down the road. I'm just not equipped to handle this part of the discussion well. I just don't have the expertise. I will, however, share some principled thoughts and some practical thoughts relative to the workplace in just a minute and paint a few broad brushstrokes. Many experts suggest that sex is what's between your legs and gender is what's between your ears. And this does make some sense to me. But more importantly, I would suggest that your view of both sex and gender starts with what's in your heart. And who or what owns your heart? For us, as God's people, our hearts, our hearts of stone have been replaced with hearts of flesh. And this enables us to increasingly have the mind of Christ, which in turn ideally shapes how we ultimately view both gender and sex, and sexes. That said, I know there's tremendous complexity here related to normative gender expectations and identity, and even how all of this relates to sexual orientation, especially in today's world. And I reiterate my earlier comment regarding sex-sex related to all of this and the foundational truth that it's only in the context of covenantal heterosexual marriage relationship that sex-sex is rightly expressed. But guess what? In the workplace, this is a moot point especially given our earlier discussion of the fact that sex, sex, and work simply don't mix. So in the workplace, my admonition for all of you is to simply acknowledge that all genders are indeed awesome. 
and that all genders and sexual orientations are indeed embodied by image bearers. And all image bearers are inherently worthy of our dignity and respect in the workplace. They are all equally worthy of being engaged in and embraced as co-creators related to the work of any organization and how that work showers God's common grace on the world. Just as much as all races and sexes and ages and closer to home for us as God's people, religions. Imagine being marginalized in the workplace because of the fact that you're a Jesus freak. Interestingly, sexual orientation and gender identity are not yet protected classes at the federal level via via a specific federal law. The EOC believes as if they are, behaves as if they are, but they aren't, at least not explicitly, not at the federal level. But, so what? That train has left the station, and in my opinion, it's simply a matter of time until we have a federal law on the books that declares exactly that. More importantly, I would suggest it's a right response on our part as God's people to already embrace that inevitability, despite the faith and worldview-related complexities in the midst of all of this. That's because work is awesome for all workers, regardless of their unique image bareness. What a joy it is for us all to work and work well in mutual respect and shalom as much as is possible. Back to Daft Punk. More than ever, hour after, our work is never over. Let's get at it together and make God's world more and more optimal through our work with all image bearers as colleagues. There's a great verse from the book of Ecclesiasticus from the Apocrypha in the Catholic Bible. I'm not trying to stir up a food fight about the scriptural canon here. It says this, but they tend to the fabric of this world and their prayer is in the practice of their trade. To me, this declares the bedrock truth that all image bearers are hardwired by their their creator to want to work to want to make the world more optimal, and for their contributions to be sacred in nature, regardless of whether those image bearers acknowledge their creator God. Remember, the cultural mandate was given to all of humanity before the fall. Be fruitful. Have dominion. Make much of what I have entrusted to you. Prosper my world. As God's people, it's up to us to embrace all image bearers as being equally worthy co-creators with us in living out God's creation mandate, ensuring that we embrace egalitarianism and meritocracy in the workplace. That's the bottom line. This all came to a head for me some time ago, so let me finish by sharing a story with you. I wasn't all that far removed from the seats you guys are sitting in right now. I was 27 and in my first management level position, and I thought I was the man. I was a freshly minted MBA, and I was a relatively young believer. The scales fell from my eyes, and I was born again when I was 20, and a bit of a self-righteous evangelical. One day, one of my employees, we'll call her Pamela, came into my office and pointed at a poster on my wall and said, that poster offends me and I want you to take it down. It tells me that I'm less important as a woman, and also that my gender identity and sexual orientation are wrong. It oppresses me. I was taken aback, and I remember feeling both attacked and somewhat challenged in my uniqueness as a Christian. 
The poster depicted a gathering of men in Washington, D.C., hosted by a men's ministry that championed the ideal of men being servant leaders for their families and in their communities, and also championed the ideal of being strongly conservative activists relative to the then-emerging but fast-growing movement toward embracing gender fluidity and LGBTQ sexual orientations in the workplace. Looking back on that ministry, there were for sure some things that were not optimal about, about how it rolled and what its agenda was. But that's a separate conversation. Simply put, I had a decision to make. Pamela was gender fluid, and she was a lesbian. She was also a gregarious and brilliantly talented employee. Thankfully, displaying more wisdom than I had, trust me, I asked her if I could think about it. Looking back, I now know that that wisdom came from the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I asked her if we could revisit her request the next day. Then I thought about it and prayed about it. When we did meet again the next morning, I told her that I had decided to take down the poster and that her feeling safe and free from oppression was more important to me than my right to express my faith-based uniqueness by hanging that poster on my wall. She thanked me and went back to work really well. She was one of my best teammates and did an outstanding job on a multi-million dollar project that we were both assigned to. I was very thankful for Pamela. And hear me right, I have been anything short of perfect when it comes to dealing with these workplace dynamics over the years. But I do believe that God graciously used Pamela and that moment in my life to subtly shift my view of image bearerness in the workplace and even the rightness or wrongness of interjecting my faith-based worldview and uniqueness into a markedly diverse workplace. Perhaps most fundamental to all of this was realizing that my employer wasn't paying me to manage my employees in such a way as to make them my proselytizing agenda. But rather, my employer was paying me to unlock the giftedness of all of my employees in a way that resulted in shared prosperity for all of us. Ironically, several months later, Pamela asked me to lunch, and within minutes of sitting down together in the company cafeteria, she leaned forward and asked me, why are you such a Jesus freak? I don't remember much of the specificity with which I responded to her question. I'm hopeful that I emphasize the essentials of our faith that I emphasize the good news of God's amazing grace. I'm hopeful that my words were full of grace, but seasoned with salt. I hope that's what I did. I have no idea what God has done in Pamela's life through that episode in our working life together. <laughs> but I know for sure what God did in my life through it. God graciously admonished me and taught me that all of our colleagues at work are our neighbors. And all are inherently worthy of being as holistically engaged as possible in the workplace. In a way that celebrates both egalitarianism and meritocracy. And perhaps my number one job at work is to love my God by loving all my neighbors as myself. By the way, that poster is now framed and hangs on my office wall here at the college. It reminds me of all of this for God's glory and my good.